Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you in the house. We're going to talk today some more about developing a godly identity. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 16 through 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. The subtitle of the message is Seeing Properly. Seeing Properly. S-E-E-I-N-G. Seeing Properly. Paul is writing and he says, Therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Now we no longer see him this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, verse 17, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Lord, help us as we study. Paul is doing what he can to help the church at Corinth develop new vision, giving them an understanding of how to walk properly. Earlier, he speaks in verse 7, in contrast to being here on the planet and being absent from the Lord or being with the Lord, he says, though I know I am absent from the Lord while I am in the body, I walk by faith and not by sight. There is a way the believers ought to, ought to posture themselves toward the world, and that's by using a different set of eyes, eyes of faith, not eyes that are planted in your head that are natural in their orientation. And the church at Corinth is having a hard time trying to figure out how to apply the supernatural to the everyday. Oh, when they get together on Sunday morning, they've got it going on. They've got prophecy. They've got tongues. Everything is out of order, but they got it. Healings. They are a supernatural group of people. But they don't seem to apply that supernatural to their everyday lives. They, they seem to like to most apply it only in their regimented Sunday morning worship. And so he's saying, there's something about you that is supernatural all the time, every day. God has done something in you that is, that is not just relegated for Sunday morning, but it's supposed to be manifested on Tuesday. Yes. He is Lord of everything. He's not just Lord of your worship congregationally. And as Lord, he wants to be all that he is to you through you. So he wants to be Lord in your marriage and manifest supernatural works there, helping you be the best spouse you can be to your spouse. He wants to be Lord in your employment, helping you become the best employee or employer you can possibly be. He wants to be Lord in your relationships, helping you be the best friend you can be. He wants to be Lord in your authoritative or submission-oriented relationships, people that you have to work for and people that you have to work over whether it be in the employment, which I've already mentioned, or whether it be in another context, volunteering or serving here in the church. He wants to help be Lord over your finances, Lord over your body and your physical health. Every area of your life, he is supposed to be Lord. Every area. Now, some areas, we just relegate his lordship to a title, not a function. So we recognize that he is, we just don't want him to be it over us in that area. And if he is Lord, then he needs to be Lord of all. So here, Paul in this short passage is trying to help the church at Corinth understand he needs to be Lord over your eyes. Lord over what you see. Now we're going to divide the sermon into two 
main points. One, what we recognize naturally, and then what God has created us to be. Now, he says we no longer recognize anyone according to the flesh. Though we have recognized Christ that way, yet we no longer do so. And this is, this is a monumental statement. Let me say what he's not saying first. Paul is a smart man. He knows we must recognize each other according to how we've come to know one another. Memory helps us know how we need to position ourselves toward people. And so when we recognize someone according to the flesh, meaning how they appear to us, then that allows us the privilege of knowing how we can best relate to them. It should not be 50 first dates. You shouldn't have to reintroduce yourself to somebody on a regular basis. And so recognition according to the flesh is important. But what he is saying is we should not define one another according to that recognition. The flesh represents the carnal nature of man to do generally what man wants to do and not what God wants to do. And the carnal nature of man is good at sinning. Rebelling, going the wrong way. And because it is good at sinning, there are habit patterns and there are things that we give ourselves to that aren't even habits, we just want to, that cause us to either view ourselves differently or cause other people to view us differently. And when other people do the same, meaning give themselves to the carnal nature of the flesh, we view them differently as a result. He says, let's not define ourselves according to our carnal nature. Nothing wrong with recognizing friendships. A lot wrong with recognizing them according to what's gone wrong in them. Mm, Let me give you an example. Adam and Eve were in the garden. And this set the tone for all that we are and all that we do. What we have to overcome. Adam and Eve in the garden. God says, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but just don't eat from that one there. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat of it, you will die. Of course, they eat of it. Adam and Eve, both there, listening to the serpent. The serpent is having a conversation with Eve. Adam is right there with her, not doing what he is supposed to do. She's not doing what she's supposed to do, but he's not doing what he's supposed to do and saying, serpent, shut up. That's what a man's supposed to do. As a leader of the home, that's the way, by the way, we believe men ought to be leaders of the home. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That is not defined as the superior is not defined as the authoritarian, simply the leader. The one who is responsible when anything goes wrong. That's all a leader is, y'all. That's about all a leader is. Because in reality, I don't know many men that lead their houses. Except when stuff goes wrong. My fault. That's all my fault, my fault, my fault, my fault. But Adam should have said something because God gave him the responsibility of guarding his house. He said, tend it and keep it. This garden is yours. I'm giving you, you make sure that stuff that that is supposed to stay in stays in and stuff that is supposed to stay out stays out. That's your job, Adam. Cultivate this garden. Make it work. He didn't keep the enemy out. So he had full reign to speak to his wife and he was sitting there right with him and Why didn't he say something? I don't know. But why don't you say something? Yeah, same thing. You came from Adam. (laughs) 
they eat from the tree. It says God came in the garden to walk with him in the cool of the day. It was, seems to be part of his standard appointment. And so he walked with Adam and Eve, and he, he couldn't find him that particular day. And he says, where are you? He says, um, we were hiding. Well, why? Did you eat from the tree I, of which I told you not to eat? Mm, yeah, about that. Um, yeah, great, que- great question. Yeah, um, see, it was the woman that you gave me. I mean, blame shifting? Then he turns to the woman. Is this true? Well, yeah. But see, it was the serpent implying both of them. This, this might have been better done if you had intervened. See, the woman that you gave me, see, I was asleep when you made her. I really, I didn't have much, but you, you, gave, you gave her to me. And see what she did. See what you made did. Blaming her and God. And then the woman blames the serpent, which ultimately blames God because God made all creation. And so they were blaming one another. I mean, sin had really messed up the relationship. But it all started from this. It says when they ate of it, they saw that both of them were naked. The eyes of both of them were opened and they saw that they were naked and they went and found fig leaves and covered themselves. The first, the first problem with the sin that came resulting from sin was that their eyes were messed up. They saw something they shouldn't have seen. They recognized things they should not have recognized. <laughs> As soon as they ate, the eyes of both of them were opened. Now, I've preached that somehow, and and many commentators I've read, that maybe there was something that covered Adam and Eve, a glory, some kind of supernatural presence that allowed them to see one another differently. And when they sinned, as a result of the sin, the glory kind of left and then they saw. I don't know that that's true. Might be, but I I don't think so now. Because... Looking at it in the context of what Paul is saying here allows us the privilege of understanding how we should see post-sin. And the fact that their eyes were opened and they saw stuff they didn't see before makes me think that it wasn't something that disappeared from them once they sinned. It was something that opened in their eyes to see things they should not have seen after they sinned. Example. When somebody sins against you, when they hurt you and betray you, generally you see them different, don't you? The next time you see them, you see them different. You think about them differently. Now you see stuff that you didn't see before. Now you've got to reposition your life accordingly. How do I address them? Which service do they go to? You don't see them the same way. Your pastor, somebody you've listened to on the radio, seen on TV, boy, trusted. His voice was like the the voice of God for you in direction and encouragement. All of a sudden, he blows it, falls, sleeps with the secretary, runs away with money. Same guy, 
Same guy. God knew him when he was doing that. Same guy. But now you hear his voice. It makes you sick. You don't see him the same way. He's the same guy. But you don't see him that way anymore. Sin affects your eyes. This is why Paul said, I don't recognize anybody according to the flesh anymore. I choose to allow redemption to work through my eyesight so that I can see them differently. And the enemy really wants to work at this. Now, I outlined what Adam and Eve went through with respect to, to blame because it's important that you know what happens as a result of how you view people differently when they hurt you. The enemy wants to do everything he possibly can to get people who are important to your progress out of your life. And the best way you can do it is not to have them move because you could still connect with them. I mean, the Internet and all of our communication tools allows us to feel like we're with somebody even when we're not with them. My daughter's on the mission field, and we Skype every three days. And I feel like she's right here, though I miss her deeply. I feel like she's still here. You can still connect. Distance in the issue. The issue is distance of heart. He wants to make everybody separate, does the enemy. And generally speaking, the people who hurt you the most are those who are most close. Those who also have the, the possibility of helping you the most. Those are the ones that hurt you the most. And so the enemy will craft moments that allow things to happen whereby you don't see them like you used to see them anymore. And they will never be able to provide the benefit that they used to because you will not let them. And the enemy rejoices. <laughs> I worked. They'll never be best friends again. I'm going to break up that marriage because she will never see him that way again because he did this. I'll break up this relationship. I'll destroy this business because they don't trust one another anymore. And the enemy's in the backdrop just clapping, saying, did it again. This not only relates to how you view others, it relates to how you view you. Condemnation sits at your door on a regular basis. With the same mantra, you can't because you did. You'll never be able to because of what happened. Don't you believe that God has that in store for you, not for somebody like you who did that? Letting you know regularly how wrong you were yesterday so you will never be what you should be tomorrow. Condemnation sits at your door trying to figure out how to get in your house to live. And there is no way that you can combat it with mind over matter. It's not a matter of self-will and some kind of psychiatric moment where you sit on a couch to, to be more self-actualized. The only way you can combat spiritual demonic input is with the word of Almighty God. When the enemy comes to you, you've got to have a, it says, thus God says, it is written. You've got to have that. Which leads me to my favorite mantra. Read your Bible. It's the only way you're going to have the information necessary to combat the enemy that wants to stop you from being what you should be and doing what you should do. Otherwise, you will look at yourself in a minimalistic fashion constantly. Sin messes up your eyesight. Paul says, we don't regard Anybody, we don't define anybody according to the flesh anymore. You got to see differently. 
You got to hear people differently, especially when they hurt you, because that pain, that pain is, is the divine recognizer. It's the indicator of what needs to change on the inside of you. As long as you will distance yourself from somebody because they hurt you, then you'll never be as much like Jesus as you should. Think about it. Would you like God to treat you like you treat others? I'm just asking. How many times have you betrayed him? You had opportunity to make witness of who he was to somebody, and you acted like, you may not have said it, but you acted like you didn't know him. Didn't come out of your mouth. I don't know who he is. But you had an opportunity to help and you didn't. And he's wondering, were you ashamed of recognizing me as a family member? I mean, when you have your, your, your when you're introducing to your, yourself to someone on a plane or someplace and you pull out your phone. Oh, that's my brother. That's my sister, my wife, my kids. When do you show Jesus? When do you do that? Are you ashamed? How many times have you sinned against him and hurt him? And betrayed him. So many times you cannot count. And most of, the, most of the times you've done it, you don't even know you're doing it. It just comes natural. It is so part of the fiber and, and fabric of your being that you don't even know you're offending him on a regular basis. And yet he continually says, come. Reaches out to you regularly. Trying to figure out how to get you right. Bringing you in. Because he realizes he doesn't see you that way anymore. He's already forgiven. He's made a decision to want to restore. And so he comes to reach out to you. To help you get right. When you, when you have an opportunity to be like him, please, please take it. Reach out to somebody who has offended you. And be, be the big, be the adult, be the big boy. And not wait because everybody, if you've been offended, you're waiting for the offender to figure it out. Oh, they need to come to me. I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait right here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to wait. They're going to get it right. If they don't get it right, that's all right. I'd be okay. I'd be okay. No, you won't. Because you're the one who sleeps with it, wakes up with it, thinks about it all day long. You wind up in prison, in the prison of your own thoughts, bitterness, anger, confined by your malice toward that person because you're so angry that they can do that. And you don't feel like you need to be the one who initiates anything. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, if while you are offering your sacrifice and you realize that your brother has an offense against you, Stop going to church and call your brother and get it right. Then come and offer your sacrifice. So what he does is he says, you who are most spiritual, figure out a way to get it right with your brother and then come and offer your worship. You who are already inclined to serve me, serve me like this first and then come and serve me. I'm not going to receive your offering. Because it's tainted by the fact that your relationships are splintered. And there's something of integrity that ought to mark our lives.
lives. That if we can worship God without impediment, it ought to be that we have relational contacts that are the same. Contexts that allow us the privilege of holding on to people. Now, there's no way we could assure that everybody is going to be right with us. But we can be assured that we are right with everybody. Are you with me? It takes two to tango. And so you may not ever be good friends with somebody again. But you can do everything that that is possible to do to try to restore that relationship. You don't see them the same way you do anymore. You see them differently, not according, not defined by the flesh. And if anybody had a mind to do this with respect to Christ, it was probably Paul. Last week we learned when he was Saul, he was a... He was a junior with respect to years of Christ. He was 10 years younger. But he was schooled as a Pharisee. He was the son of a Pharisee. He learned the pharisaical pharisaical tradition in his house. And and although he may not have been the primary to try to refute, refute Christ when the Pharisees did, I promise you, he was in the conversation about how do we deal with this? Whether it be John the Baptist or whether it be Jesus, how do we deal with this? And he saw him according to the flesh, but he did not join him. In fact, he tried to resist probably. But on that road to Damascus, he saw Jesus differently. His eyes were opened. Same Jesus. Same Jesus. He just saw him differently. If there's anybody who understood, I had an opportunity to join But I didn't recognize. I saw him according to the flesh. And it just, I didn't like what I saw. But then I saw him like this. Oh my goodness, what was I thinking when I was was looking at him according to the flesh? You have no idea what somebody could be to you. You have no idea what God intends them to be to you unless you open your eyes of faith to see. The enemy will try to keep them from you. So that you will not get the help you need from them and you will not get delivered on the inside of all the bitterness that needs to get out. Your maturity is going to be based in large part on how you relate to others. Paul said we don't see one another according to the flesh anymore. We see beyond it. And this is where he says I look at people according to the word of God. What they are And what they will be. What God has made them. Not what they have become through their experience. Through their upbringing. Through the definitions of others. Through their their education. I'm not defining them by that. I'm defining them by something else. What God has made them. And what God will make them. If there's any good picture of that. it's It's the incessant hope that parents have for their children. At the age of two, you firmly believe that you are raising a criminal. (laughs) Everything suggests that that is the truth. They don't listen to you. Every time you tell them no and take away their favorite thing, they throw tantrums. They hit you. They tell you what you ought to do. Everything about says, this one here should have stayed inside. I should not have birthed him. Yet there is something on the inside of you that has hope. You're not going to define them by that two-year-old tantrum when they're four. Because you believe differently. You know there's something on the inside. You know that there's something God is still working. And this is the way we need to believe about each other. 
which leads me to my last point, that we are new creation realities. Oh, what God has done in us is transformative, not reformative. Reformation is just about behavior. That's all it is. And better behavior is better than bad behavior. So I'm glad about anybody who's doing better than bad. Really, yeah. But behavior modification is not the goal in Christianity. The goal is transformation that allows behavior modification to be natural rather than forced. And transformation says, I'm not the same bread anymore. I was just out in California with my sister and family, and I was ministering to our church that we planted there last year. And I got to spend some time with my family. My, my sister still looks at me with disbelief. <laughs> she just says, you're a pastor. <sighs> wow. Just, wow. There's something of a new creation that has happened on the inside of me. I'm, and it's, she knows it's not just reformation because she knows me. She knows you, you're, a, you're, just, you're, you're not the same bread. My brother calls me and says, can we do some Bible study? Because you are just different. I mean, you're a fuller, but you're a different kind of fuller. You're a different kind of fuller. And the beauty is my entire family is benefiting not from my reformation, but my transformation. You know, sometimes you don't know. I'm going to take a little longer in this service. Sometimes you don't know. You know, you plan a church because somebody says, I feel like I need to go to L.A. And that's what Pastor Dion said. I said, cool with that. And there's some people who want to go with you. Great. You send a whole bunch of folk to L.A. Great. That's not necessarily in my sphere of influence. I'm right here in D.C. I'm trying to win my city. But I said, great, go to L.A. Not thinking anything. And all of a sudden, my niece is helping to lead worship at the church in L.A. I'm thinking, wow. Lord, you sent a church to L.A. for my family, too. It's just so cool. Transformation does something that allows you to be hardly recognizable to anybody who used to know you. And this is the new creation reality that we are. And the beauty is this. The image of Christ continues to be formed in you if you stay with him. It's not a one-time thing where all of a sudden you see Jesus come on the inside of you and you stay the same. And whatever you were when you gave your heart to him 20 years ago is still who you are. No, I'm not the same person I was last week. He is growing on the inside of me. Ah, I'll say it this way. I am decreasing that he might increase. He's as big as he will ever be on the inside of me. I'm just getting less so you see him more. Transformation. I'm preaching worse and being heard better. I don't know what that means. The last couple of weeks, I have not felt in sync at all. Last week, I was out of my mind. I don't even know if I was here or not. Got off a plane at 7.30, red eye. I don't know. I can't even remember a thing I said in four servers. I don't know what I said. But this week, I got here, and I'm, I'm sitting there saying, Lord, I just don't feel as right as I should. But I know what's being heard, and I know what Jesus is doing on the inside of me, and I know that transformation is having a better effect on you than it did six months ago. And I'm not trying to become a better preacher. I'm just trying to become a better Christian. Because if I'm a better Christian, I'll do everything else better. 
be a better friend, a better husband, a better employee, a better servant, a better preacher, a better everything. Transformation. And I'm telling you, with respect to progress, I'm already way beyond what I thought I could do. Way beyond. I just wanted to have a little church of about 200 that can make mama proud. I'm serious. I did not. I, I did not. My vision wasn't that big. It just wasn't that big. Now, fortunately, other people saw stuff in me and hung out long enough for you to want to hang out. And I'm grateful for that. So many people helped because they saw Brett differently. They didn't pigeonhole me. I got a friend of mine named Michelle Johnson who's the wife of a pastor that we helped to plant in, in Orlando. Bethel and Nashville planted them, but we helped. And Tim Johnson was a part of this church. He was Daryl's best friend and played with the Redskins. And he's a powerful preacher. He's just amazing. But they were part of our church in 1988, 89, 91 when I became pastor. And when I became pastor, I had not rubbed three sermons together in my life. I didn't know what I was doing. And so I wrote all my sermons out so I didn't make any mistakes. And I just read them. That's all I do. And the shell reminds me. Ooh, I remember. <laughs> I looked at Tim and said, you sure this is a church for us? She keeps me humble on a regular basis. Went to the church and preached last year. Actually, February. She says, man. You don't even use notes. What happened to you? She said, it's not just skill. It's like Jesus got bigger on the inside of you. And I'm not even trying to be a good preacher. I'm not. I'm just trying to be a good Christian. And whatever he's called me to do when I'm a good Christian gets better. I get better at doing it. That's transformation. What you are is not what you will be. Don't look in the mirror and define yourself by that. You are a new creation. Hallelujah. Allow God the privilege Hallelujah. of redefining you on a regular basis. Hallelujah. And not sticking with what mama said, yes. teacher said, coach said, or you said. Read your Bible every day. Figure out what God said. And allow what you could be to emerge and blow you completely away. A new creation. Old things are passed away. That old, that old life gone. Gone. It's not that I don't remember it. It's just that all my mistakes have no bearing on my future. No bearing on my future. Old things are passed away. And new has become. There's a bright future for you. If you will believe. To not judge yourself according to your own carnal nature and there's a bright future in your relational contexts if you will believe to not hold your friends in the prison of their own mistakes but release them to be the benefit they should be for you let's pray Father I'm asking for your mercy to help please inspire us so that we can be what we should be and open our eyes so we can see what we should see